0: This is the Money Talks Podcast with Michael Campbell.
1: I'm glad you're with me, and I promise it's going to be worth your time. I've got one of the premier analysts of historic market trends, Bob Hoy. He's going to join me, and you literally can't afford to miss what history tells us is coming next for stocks, the dollar, and gold. And in case you missed it, a new nano survey tells us what our top concerns are heading into a federal election. And in a moment... I'm going to tell you why politicians and the media will completely ignore it. And if climate change is one of your issues, well, you're going to have to hear this week's shocking stat. And yes, you will be shocked. And coming up, I'll have the quote, not just of the week, the quote of the year in politics. And my goofy is bound to make some people's blood boil, but it's about time they were called out. But first, the prime minister and cabinet ministers are campaigning across the country, making billions of dollars in spending promises and what Just about anyone with a pulse recognizes is part of the not yet announced federal election. Now, non-supporters of the Prime Minister are going to rail at using taxpayers' funds for campaigning, while Liberal supporters will say, no problem. Here's the interesting part, though. A nano-survey done for CTV released this week finds that the top election issues for Canadians revolve around the economy, taxation, deficits, and jobs. Very similar, by the way, to the polls done before the 2019 election. Here's the problem. Those subjects are not the top concern for politicians. Maybe it's because the vast majority have severely restricted understanding of economics and finance, which is why they roll out some policies surrounding taxation regulation with no seeming indication that they understand they would significantly damage the economy. But compounding the problem is that economic-related subjects are not near the top of the list for reporters and other media who cover the election. It's not even close. Remember, kickoff to the last election, Liberals Ralph Goodall immediately lowered the level of discussion by suggesting that a woman's right to choose was on the table. Why? Because Alabama had introduced restrictions on abortion. And boy, the vast majority of those covering the election ate it up. They even started questioning the conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, about his religion. Never acknowledging the fact that abortion has been legal in Canada since June 1969. Stephen Harper had won a majority with the conservatives, Issue was never on the agenda, and it didn't rate anywhere on the list of public concerns. No, it didn't stop them. I still can't get over, by the way, that during the 2019 English language leaders debate, there is not one in-depth question on the economy or finance. So my point is only that I have no reason to suspect that this election campaign will be any different. So my point, you're on your own. If you're worried about jobs, maybe your standard of living, your children's standard of living, worried about poverty, homelessness, sustainable healthcare, government deficits, charitable donations, living conditions on First Nations communities, or your pensions viability, then you are worried about economic growth, because none of those issues are helped with a weak economy. Even issues like climate change and our response to China are rooted in economics and finance. But as I said, you're going to be on your own. So I thought I might be able to save you some time by suggesting focusing on the most important aspect the foundation of progress on all of those issues, the most key to economic growth, and that is, does the policy encourage or discourage people and businesses to invest their capital in Canada? Will a company want to buy new equipment, expand, invest in intellectual property, invest in their workforce? It doesn't matter what leader or party you support, much like a store needs customers with money, regardless of the owner's political leanings, well, the economy needs capital investment to grow. As the C.D. Howe Institute report earlier this year entitled From the Chronic to the Acute, Canada's Investment Crisis, well, it sums it up well. We've been witnessing a decline in capital investment for five years. We are miles behind the U.S. For every dollar in investment they spend on businesses and their workers, we spend just 60 cents. In 2019, Canadian companies invested over $800 more out of the country than in Canada our workers are at a huge disadvantage when it comes to things like machinery and equipment for every dollar of new capital invested in the average US worker last year 41 cents was invested in the average Canadian worker what about r and d and software well for every dollar of our of new and intellectual property invested per average US worker in 2020 the average Canadian worker got 24 cents come on this is profound it impacts our workers and companies' ability to compete regardless of the party in power. And it's been going on for five years. I think it threatens C-minus growth after this initial bump in the economy. But it was going to always happen because we lifted pandemic restrictions. But then you threw in record low interest rates and the federal government borrowing and spending more in two years than the previous 152 combined. Well, there was always going to be a big economic bounce. But the question is, what comes after? And the answer largely depends on our ability to attract investment capital. I'm not sure, though, which is more shocking, the continual decline in capital investment, along with our competitiveness rankings, by the way, or the number of people and politicians who either don't understand the significance or couldn't care less. As Alex Usher, president of Higher Education Strategy, Associates, states, there is no longer a political home for growth oriented policies in Canada. Well, I'll tell you, that's got to change. We are not going to be able to borrow our way to prosperity. At some point, you got to earn it. And that comes back to capital investment. Not tough to understand, but I think it requires a rethink on the part of our political parties. This is not business as usual. We have not come out of the pandemic the same way we entered it. I'll give you one quick example. We're not going to develop renewable energy and the mineral resources needed to build the infrastructure without massive capital investment. And that means policies, things like raising taxes on those investments and on the businesses who make those investments, well, that should be a non-starter for every party. But you know what? That'll be too tough for some politicos. They, have, they fail to recognize it is a new world and old ideologies will not cut it. I'm going to take a break. i come back. I've got Mike Levy on the latest job numbers coming up. I'm also going to talk with Bob Hoy. There's just a huge raft of things. We're just coming into this sort of bubbly kind of period. Look at the stock market. Look at other asset growth. I'm going to ask Bob, what does history tell us about that? What can we expect next, both short-term and long-term? I've also got a terrific quote of the week. It'll be controversial. I've got, I think, speaking, I just mentioned renewable energy. Wait till you hear my shocking stat in that regard, sort of renewable investments, uh, ESG. Wait till you hear it. Plus, I got a goofy award. I got Aussie. I got Victor. It's all coming at you. And glad you're with me. Let's bring in Mike Levy right now. Hey, Mike, I, I want to do this first off, is that as, uh, you know, I'm critical of the media, especially coverage of economy and the uh, financial side a lot of times. I want to give a pat in the back, though, the media. They announced the job numbers, and virtually every report I said, as uh, I heard rather said, yeah, but the gains were part time. So let's dig in a little bit to those numbers. You know, the headline was, sounded good, but there's details that need to be brought to your attention.
0: Always Mike the devil is in the details and it was um you know after two months of job losses uh, in April and May the economy added two hundred and thirty thousand seven hundred jobs uh, that is a great number unemployment fell from seven or to seven point eight percent from eight point two percent in may uh, and, and economists were only expecting 175,000 new jobs. So those headline that's what we call the headline numbers, and anybody who would read the headline numbers in the first paragraph, which is the way most people, by the way, read their news or take a look at their news, is we want to know what the headline is, we want to know what they've got to say in the first paragraph. But, again, the devil is in the details. Um, uh, the fact is full-time work, Mike, fell by... 33,200 jobs. Self-employment tumbled by 63,100 jobs. Those are good jobs that have been replaced by part-time jobs, student jobs.
1: Well, and again, you saw the decline in full-time numbers. And, and it's hardly a surprise, by the way. Look at the industries that are getting the restrictions lifted. It's you know, sort of summer employment-y kind of things. Uh, people trying to get accommodation, you know, parts of tourism, recreation. So, again, not a big surprise on the part-time job numbers, although your point's so well taken, it was the dominant number. Uh, but the, when you start
0: looking at the full-time, not such a rosy picture. No, not at all, Mike. And it, really the entirety, and to say the entirety, it's maybe exaggerating a little bit, but a huge portion of job creation in the month of June was part-time work. 263,900 new part-time jobs. And those, and and God bless them, Mm -hmm. is going to give a big lift to uh, young people, to students who need to work over the summer, students students who need to earn money to go to school next year. Um, The employment for youth age 15 to 24 rose by more than 164,000 jobs. Those are all great numbers, but they've got to go hand in hand. It's got to go parallel with adding the good-paying full-time jobs, and right now that's not happening. We're seeing jobs in uh, um, in the travel industry, in the leisure industry. Those are coming back, and in some cases, Mike, it's very hard for employers to hire because people are, try, you know, basically trying to stay away from the kind of jobs that are becoming available in travel and uh, entertainment and that kind of thing. So um, it's got to be a quality uh, job recovery. If it's not a quality job recovery, then that's going to put economic growth, economic strength, uh, it's going to put it at risk because we have to. We, we have to have good full-time jobs. And, and by the way, Canada has recovered 89% of its pandemic job losses. But again, it's what kind of job losses were there and what kind of job gains are we getting now? Well, just one last thing quickly.
1: The other n- number that I think a lot of economists will look at is people who have been out of work for like one year or two years now. You know, uh, that number isn't budging. I mean, that number is not getting more positive. I mean, long-term unemployment.
0: Not at all. Uh, the the long term joblessness, people who have a job for one to two years, has jumped from January 2020 from about 50,000 to about 175, 170,000 in June, in the June report. And just one more thing. Quickly, super employers like Amazon and Walmart, and this is from the U.S., but it transcends Canada, too, was making it even more difficult for small and medium-sized businesses to attract workers. In the summer of 2019, here it is, the top 25 employers had 10% of the open jobs. Today, it's 10 employers. 10 employers have Hmm. that number, so it's gone from 25 to 10 as big businesses, Walmart, Amazon, They're the ones that are hiring. They're the ones that are supplying the jobs. But they are the super employers. Those aren't the great full-time jobs. Well, and also just last note on that is,
1: of course, Walmart didn't face the same restrictions in stores. Either did Costco. And, of course, Amazon thrived. So, no wonder they've got the the wherewithal and the cash to keep on expanding where small businesses, especially at the retail level, restaurant level, you know tourism level, were struggling to stay afloat. so very different circumstances. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Good weekend. Thanks, here. Mike. take a break. I'm going to come back. Uh, we're going to get I've got a big fat idea with you. I've got Justin Smith of Hawkeye Wealth coming up right after the break. One of the hallmarks of the pandemic and uh, shock to some people was the strength of the real estate market and all var- or so many different varieties. It could be warehousing, thanks to e-commerce. Uh, obviously, residential, it was the big leader, though, away. So I thought I'd get Justin Smith back on the line, president of Hawkeye Wealth, asking him for a big, fat idea. I'm thinking, Justin, about uh, you guys look at private equity deals in real estate, obviously. Uh, tell me a little bit about how to, investors may use that as an alternative way to invest in real estate.
2: Yeah, morning, Mike. Today's big fat idea is exactly that. If you're looking to increase your real estate exposure to consider investing in a in a mix of limited partnerships rather than maybe just one or two REITs or funds.
1: Okay, so let's let's walk through that. Let me first with private equity. What you're saying is you guys go and identify opportunities, people invest their money. uh, Is that pretty much it?
2: Yes, that's pretty much it. You're identifying a single, a single property to purchase instead of going into a fund that has uh, a number of properties in it. And the reason that we do that is that if you invest in a mix of individual properties, uh, that usually generates higher returns than investing in a fund because the capital is used more efficiently. That's because when you invest into a fund, there's, there's usually a significant period of time between your, when your money goes into the fund and when that money gets invested into an actual property. Whereas if you're investing in in one partnership that's already selected one or two properties to buy, your money's put to work right away.
1: Uh, let me come uh, jump ahead just for a sec. We're talking to what, long-term investors then? This is not somebody looking
2: for a flip. You, you got it, you got it. Yeah, you're right. For people that that uh, have long-term money that are looking to maximize their, their returns, mostly because the capital's used Use more more efficiently. The other thing many recent funds have to do is keep a larger pool of cash on hand for redemptions that just sits idle. And of course, being able to redeem can be a nice feature depending on your need for liquidity. Uh, it just comes at the cost of lower returns. So you're correct. It's for longer term money that's looking to to increase its returns.
1: Are you thinking sort of like three, four, five years?
2: Yep. Yep that would be uh, that would be okay. quite quite typical.
1: Okay. Let, let's come back then to looking at a mix of limited partnerships uh, as opposed to just on picking one piece of real estate or maybe a couple of REITs or something.
2: That's that's correct. What, what people do is they find groups like ours that provide access to individual deals, and, and there are a variety of strategies out there that you can pursue, Mike. I've mentioned a number of them on your show, including investing apartment buildings, industrial buildings, Master planned community developments and uh, even investing in in mortgages, which can provide a great income stream and what we're finding out there is that experienced investors want more and more involvement in selecting which properties they invest in so they can tailor their portfolio to their own liking uh, yes yet they want to stay passive on the operational side so they have the time to focus focus more uh, exclusively on their businesses or professional careers or or, or their grandkids uh, so
1: you could come back and so What you're saying is I could build sort of a little uh, portfolio this way of private equity deals, but it might be industrial might be one of them. Another one might may well be like a
2: multifamily unit. You got it. You can tailor a portfolio uh, exactly for you that generates likely higher returns than you'd be getting uh, in the public markets.
1: Now, do they usually spit out sort of sort of some sort of cash flow? Is it all sort of looking for capital gains?
2: Yeah, it's going to be a mix of both. And that's kind of the beauty of it, is you can go and tailor it exactly to what, what you're looking to do, right? If you're wanting to generate income, there's a number of opportunities that generate substantial income. If you're looking for capital gains, you can, you can do that as well. There's really a, a solid mix. Uh, as I've talked about previously on the show, the mortgage funds provide great income. So really, it's about, it's about talking to clients and finding out what they're looking to do and, and tailoring a portfolio to, to their needs.
1: And, and, uh, just one last question on this. And, and again, I'm talking with Justin Smith. He is the president of Hawkeye wealth. And I'll tell you just something, by the way, I've just re- remembered that you're going to do a webinar, uh, right after the show. Well, actually on Tuesday, it's after the show, but it's Tuesday after the show <laughs> on Tuesday, July 13th, you're going to do one at 11 AM. Cause I'm always big on people should, when they're looking for investments, the more, you know, the better it is. And, uh, you know, I, I'd be very interested myself in looking at what you guys look at. What are what are the components that you look at? Which obviously must vary if you're looking at something residential compared to something industrial. But you could look at the specifics on that, and you can do that uh, at the webinar coming up Tuesday, July thirteenth at eleven a.m. You can just go to Mike's Money Talks.ca to register for that. But uh, you know, if real estate is something you're interested in, it's co- it's correct for your time horizon. You're looking to make a longer term investment there in maybe a variety of different types of real estate. You might own your own home, so you might want to look elsewhere uh, or look at other aspects of the real estate market. So that's a uh, webinar that's coming up. Uh, Justin, let me just ask you this, and past performance is no guarantee of future performance, but it must have been a heck of a good market to be involved in the last uh, several years.
2: Yeah, it's been, quite frankly, too good, Mike. What happens is we've exited on a lot of deals here over the last two or three years. And it's been uh, very healthy double digit returns on average on the deals. And, and you know, it's uh, on the one hand, you're, you know, you're excited for everyone. On the other, you know, that the expectations have been raised. So I do a big part of my job is uh, resetting expectations every time we've exited on one of these deals here while still remaining, you know, optimistic about what the future holds for, for a number of these deals that we still really like.
1: Well, interesting stuff, Justin. Thanks for finding time. And again, the webinar is Tuesday, July 13th, talking about the various aspects of using uh, private equity and limited partnerships in real estate. Justin Smith, president of Hawkeye Wealth. And by the way, of course, you know, I'll be talking real estate coming up with Ozzy Jurek uh, in a little bit of time. But first I'll have Bob Hoy, and I've got a terrific quote of the week. You want to hear it. It's a great quote of the week, very controversial. I think it's the quote of the year so far when it comes to politics all of that coming your way. Stay with us. Time now for the quote of the week. Well, given the current interest in issues impacting First Nations, along with the recent appointment of Mary Simon, the first Indigenous person as Governor General, the decision of the first Indigenous person to serve in the federal cabinet, Judy Wilson-Raybould, to not seek re-election is all the more noteworthy. Although uncomfortable for liberal diehards, who will never forgive her for telling the truth when it came to the federal government's interference in the prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. She refused to bend. Instead, defended the principle of judicial independence against massive pressure from the Prime Minister's office, who by the way flat out did not tell the truth, when the Globe and Mail story broke. A problem the Prime Ministers had with other issues, but none so black and white. I mean, we now know, thanks to documents released by the Ethics Commissioner, that the PM and AIDS arranged at least 49 separate meetings and phone calls to discuss SNC-Lavalin's legal troubles and try and save the company from criminal prosecution. Judy Wilson-Raybould resigned from Cabinet in a direct response to the Prime Minister's misleading statements, but then, along with Jane Philpott, also refused, who also refused to go along with the deceit, was booted from caucus. But then, Ms. Raybould, Wilson-Raybould, won re-election as an independent. And this week, she announced she is not seeking re-election, stating in quotes, From my seat over the last six years, I have noticed a change in Parliament, a regression. It has become more and more toxic and ineffective while simultaneously marginalizing individuals from certain backgrounds. Federal politics is, in my view, increasingly a disgraceful triumph of harmful partisanship over substantive action. End of quote. The former Attorney General went on to say, the problem lies with, in quotes, the power of the Prime Minister and the centralization of power in the hands of of those who are not elected. As well as the erosion of governing principles, the lack of courage to speak the truth. And here's one that's very damning for her colleagues, the failure of bystanders to support those who do. That's the quote of the year in politics. I'll add, when integrity is regularly compromised for political gain, it doesn't matter what party, any party, how could our observation be otherwise? It gets to the heart of why so little progress is made on important issues, despite big promises, when virtue signaling is the ultimate goal and not measurable action. Federal politics is, in Ms. Raybould's, uh, Wilson Raybould's view, increasingly a disgraceful triumph of harmful partisanship over substantive action. That's the inside view, but one I think is shared by those of us who are on the outside. Very pleased to welcome back to the show, Bob Hoy. Uh, Bob, great to get uh, get you back with me. And again, we appreciate so much that you're finding time for us here. Bob, let yeah, me just I'm start right. with Hi, Mike. It's this. very
3: good to be with you.
1: Well, I want to start with this because I was looking back on your last appearance with us, and you're talking about in January, you said that 2021 would likely be the year the financial bubble would climax. And I, there's a couple of things I want to get to. Uh, do you still feel that's the case? And what do, the big thing is this, is you're one of the premier historians when it comes to market action. So what do past periods tell us what to expect, say, for the rest of the year to start with?
3: Yeah, well, they, what you're dealing with in a great financial bubble, Mike, is really huge emotions on the upside. I mean, it becomes a certain thing, but what I found, as you know, years ago was that You would have a long expansion of business, and it would culminate in a huge spike up in commodities. And the last one was 2011. Then we noticed that uh, about a decade later, you'd have the equivalent party in the financial markets with stocks and low-grade bonds going crazy which we have had, you've uh, stock market at valuations never seen, not even in 1929. And in Europe, you had the, the German 10-year note get down to almost minus 1% nominally. In 2,000 years of interest rates, that's never happened. So the point being is that the big party now is in stocks and bonds the rise in commodities in the first half of the year has been associated with the final business leg of a great party in the financial market. But uh, we had all of this peaking at around mid-year. There's a number of seasonals like for copper and seasonals for credit spreads that suggested back in January that, the party could culminate around mid-year. So that it's up now is is good. It's, it's fulfilling <laughs> the first half. The other half is that when um, the uh, credit markets start to change, uh, that's going to be a damper on speculation. So it looks like it's working out.
1: Well, there's a couple of things there within that, in, in that – that you had written that you had expected the gold price really to be weak, alternative to copper, which you said would be strong. That certainly happened. I mean, gold's been budging up recently, but it's just a budge, you know, especially yeah. compared to the move in copper. Uh, so I, you're hardly, I bet, surprised by that.
3: No, but again, these are not just the nominal prices, but because in the final phase of a great financial mania, copper's real price—that's where you take the price of copper and divided by the CPI inflation. So the real price of copper can go up in the final stages of the financial boom. And at the same time, ironically, the real price of gold heads down. And gold's real price had a huge speculative peak a year ago in July. And it's been generally declining since. So, And then with this, with the gold's real price declining, you'd expect the gold stocks to underperform the S&P which they have been. But yeah. I want to emphasize that this this is the way a great financial mania ends. And okay, everything's so me, in line yeah. now for a change. So, And actually, if you take the uh, credit spreads, which is the difference between high-grade and low-grade bonds, and do it with the uh, ETFs, the um, JNK, and the TLT, which is the long bond, it now reached its best about five or six weeks ago and as of this week took out a previous low. So credit spreads are starting to change like they did in June of 2007, just for you know recent mm-hmm. examples. So I'm confident we're on the path, or well, certainly the first half has been on the path to party time. And then the next stage is uh, the transition into the sudden discovery that there's no liquidity there.
1: Uh, I'll I'll come back to that in just a sec, but one one more because I love the the thing that you talk about in chartsandmarkets.com, www.chartsandmarkets.com. You say, we're in a sunshine period. So tell us, just elaborate a little bit more on that.
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, Basic commodities up, stocks up, low-grade bonds up and it's been a party, so we called it Sunshine. And then with the best occurring perhaps around now, then the next one we used earlier in the year was that then August could be when you change to twilight, like the sun is setting. (laughs) These are terrible examples, Mike, but they're fun. And then after September, you could go into what I've been calling the twilight zone. Remember the
4: TV show that
3: was so uh, moody and scary and whatnot. So anyways, with sunshine, we got it. Twilight, we don't know yet. And then in the fall, the Twilight Zone, and we don't know that yet either until we get there.
1: Yeah, let me hold you at that because we've got to take a break. I'm talking to Bob Hoy, chartsandmarkets.com. We'll come back. We know about the sunshine period. We've been living it here. We're starting to uh, see some of the changes there, the indications. Bob's looking at one of the real experts on credit markets, seeing some budging going back and forth in the credit market. Let's hear what he thinks is going to happen in the fall. We'll do that when we come back. Talking with Bob Hoy, chartsandmarkets.com, chartsandmarkets.com. You know, Bob is the guy I go to when I want to look at some of the historical examples. I don't have to look it up. I just have to look up Bob Hoy to figure out what's going on. (laughs) But here's the thing, Bob. Uh, One of the things that, of course, by the way, I'll tell people uh, on Money Talks. I'm getting old, I know. But on Money Talks, Bob made it very clear to us uh, with an absolutely crystal clear warning about the 2008 financial crisis was coming in the fall of 2008. He is the main reason that we got that right. Uh, you know, he brought it to our attention months in advance. He he said, okay, Mike, start looking for this in the fall of 2008. Look out. Biggest credit tsunami in history is going to hit us. So I got to tell you something else. You told us that the credit spreads. That means the the interest rates charged on, say, a government bond and the interest rate that someone's, uh, you know, that a junk bond has because they're not near as credit worthy. You said to me that, they're going to shrink. In other words, I'm not going to get a big premium for lending to someone who's questionable compared to lending to the government. Well, that's exactly what's happened. Uh, You said that would be one of your sort of check marks for a very difficult fall. So I'm hearing a big caution sign being flashed here that tells me to have people check their portfolios or investments, uh, you know, very closely to see if they're taking too much risk in some areas. Am I right in that?
3: Oh, Yeah. The other part of the equation, Mike, of course, is, is the U.S. dollar, which is still the senior currency. And in January, uh, the, we traded it as the DX. It sold off very hard. And it was oversold enough that, thought, oh, hey, let's look at this and see if one of these base-building processes for the U.S. dollar occurs and if it was going to occur, it would run for maybe four and a half or five months of building a base. And uh, then the end of the base, we found, is completed when the, um, when the actually DX goes above uh, a moving average. It's the 20-week exponential. So, and that occurred at 91 uh, three or four weeks ago. So the base has built... And the uptrend is almost set. Now, here's the other trick, is that in a post-bubble contraction, the senior currency goes up relative to other currencies and relative to commodities. So where the last couple of months, the big news in the financial markets is that 1970s inflation is going to come back, and you have to be long all the hot commodities. Well, no, this base in the u s dollar and what 's going on in the credit markets suggests that we will have a kind of a liquidity problem being discovered in the fall, so again, this is building very nicely to perhaps an ugly resolution so and as I say one of one of the items is the u uh, s dollar starting to turn up. So it has built the base, and it has turned up a little, um, it can turn up a lot more. Then the other one, Mike, with this is the is the long bond, the long treasury bond in the States or long Canada's. Uh, it built a base similarly and is acting very well. So they've had, a, you know, almost 10-point rally out of the long bond. From uh, a depressed case back in uh, in January February, so that the bond is rallying is is also signaling um, a possible liquidity crisis because it starts as a safe haven that hey maybe stocks hey maybe commodities are overpriced I think I'll we'll buy some of the long bond and that built the base and uh, then as when we were in the the pandemic crisis in early 2020, that long bond rallied 30 points. It was absolutely fabulous. So it turned from a <laughs> a quiet safe haven trade into suddenly the hot darling. So yeah. uh, so far it's up about nine points, which is actually a very nice trade. But beyond having a trade right, it's again suggesting the possibility. Of a financial crisis in the fall, so
1: things are all to make coming sure. together, Mike. Yeah, that's I, I was say. I want to make sure people are hearing uh, Bob's analysis loud and clear. Uh, liquidity problems, of course, that's what kicked off in September of 2019. This is the only show in the country that talked about it. I'll give you what the uh, the follow up is when they start talking about liquidity. Is uh, Bob, as you know, the reverse repo rates, and I'm not going to get into that. It's too confusing, but my gosh, I've never seen anything like it. They're at record levels. I mean, you can't print and create this kind of money without re- repercussions. And what you're saying, Bob, yeah. is you've looked yeah. at the credit markets, mm-hmm. you're kind of coming to a peak here. When you, when I, I looked at, for example, junk bond status, literally junk bonds trading below the inflation rate. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, So that's, that's one example. But as you're saying, yeah. and then it comes together. The domino mm-hmm. is when people start getting worried, they move into the U.S. dollar, the, the senior yeah. currency at this point. So well, when they get here's the more, other thing. It, that yeah, the careful sorry.
3: money goes to the in, – in, in anticipation of a storm, the careful money goes to the most liquid items. Most li- A very liquid right. item is gold internationally. Yeah. The other most liquid item is treasure bills in the senior currency, which is the U.S. dollar. So you're going to see a bid for gold if we go into a storm – and you'll see a bid for dollar because people will be buying less than one-year treasuries. It's, it's, when careful money sees a storm coming, it wants to go somewhere, not for a return, somewhere where it can get its money back in an instant. Yeah. And, of course, that's liquidity. Liquidity in gold, liquidity in U.S. treasury bills. Now, here's the other thing is that there are so many bids for hot items, uh, junk bonds and stocks and whatnot and commodities, that it appears to be a lot of liquidity, Mike. But a lot of that is leveraged. New York Stock Exchange margin debt is huge. So what appears to be liquidity is the opposite because it's it's borrowed money that has to be paid back. So this is then when you do go into a financial storm, the power shifts over to Mr. Margin, the margin clerk, and unless you can come up with further equity, you're going to get sold out, and often it's the sellout thing. So the appearance, it's, it's a fake liquidity that appears to be there, and because it's all borrowed money, it, it then becomes very serious on the downside when it comes
1: so, yeah, not, to, not to oversimplify on my part, but it's sort of like when everyone rushes to the exit, there's a problem. And, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, that's so it.
3: I, yeah, in the well, bond market, on the bond desk, it used to be you know a hot bond market. Get me in. And that was called GMI. And then a week later, it could be reversal and heading down, and it's GMO. Get me out. So this could happen in... Some of the hot commodities, it could happen in, definitely in junk bonds and eventually the stock market. So I, I, it's sounding negative, Mike, but all I'm doing is following that it would be party time to mid-year, then a period of cooling off, and then we know that if there's going to be a liquidity crisis, it's usually mm-hmm. discovered in the fall. Well, we'll,
1: I have to leave it at that, Bob, and tell people to go to chartsandmarkets.com. But that's an excellent summary. As I said, caution light flashing. Talk to your advisor. See if you're overexposed. You know, there could be trouble ahead. Bob, excellent job explaining it to us. And thank you so much for finding time.
3: Good to be with you, Mike.
1: Time now for this week's shocking stat. As one of our analysts, Lance Roberts, points out, Following the financial crisis, environmental, social, and government's investing, called ESG, those ESG funds, had roughly zero market share in total assets under management. Well, today, ESG-labeled funds in the U.S. exceeds $16 trillion. I mean, that's a number so big we can't imagine it. But is it making a difference? Or is it just a testament to Wall Street's pandering to virtue signaling? First of all, it's difficult to determine because there are no standard measures. I mean, you know, everything could be called ESG. Remember, like going to the grocery store and buying organic. Well, you can call anything organic because there's no standardization of it. As for making a difference, well, remember I talked to you about a study in nature.com. It was entitled An Ever Evolutionary Explanation for Ineffective, Ineffective Altruism. What it basically said is they looked at uh, charitable giving and they found that most people who donate, couldn't care less, or didn't follow up in any way about what the charitable giving actually resulted in. It was just sort of what they called the social rewards. I think the same phenomena here. People want to be seen to be socially responsible in their investing, but they don't follow up. But there is one way, I'll give you an example, of to determine whether anything's really changed. So EcoBusiness looked at 253 mutual funds that had switched to an ESG focus in 2020, 87% of them rebranded their existing funds by simply adding the word sustainable or ESG or green or climate to their names. But here's the real measure. Are you ready? None of the funds changed their stock or bond holdings after they rebranded and called themselves sustainable. That kind of gives you a hint. It was a bit of a marketing tool there, but it wasn't really resulting in anything. Let's bring Ozzy Jurek in here. Ozzy, one of the things I've been wanting to uh, discuss with you is during the pandemic, for example, uh, you know, with travel restrictions, et cetera. So we saw a big reduction in immigration because that's one of the drivers I'm looking to to drive more real estate purchases that we can't keep up with the demand when we bring new people into the country. And it looks like some of those numbers are coming to fruition right now.
4: Yeah, it's kind of interesting that we only had 184,000 emigrants last year, With normally it's about 340,000. So, yes, it was way down. But surprisingly, Stats Canada came out with a first quarter report showing 82,000 just coming in the first quarter. And that's the fastest increase that we have at any time since the pandemic started. So things are changing.
1: Oh, yeah. And especially, obviously, I would suspect that number continues to pick up because restrictions are getting lifted. People have been vaccinated, that kind of thing. And it's interesting, by the way, on a side note, the government hasn't really discussed uh in terms of vaccination travelers coming in. Yes, but they haven't discussed, uh you know, people, new Canadians coming in or new people who aspire to be Canadians uh, coming in. So that number could get much bigger. And, and then there's yeah. another one that we talked about a few years ago, hasn't been back on the agenda. But again, if you're talking about a tight rental market, it's the number of student visas that are out there. Because, of course, they're coming to study at our universities. Well, they're going to need accommodation.
4: No question about it. First of all, the, we do are very active. We have an Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, the IRCC. that has a number of initiatives. And interestingly enough, 60% of our new immigrants come under the economic class. And they have an express an entry, which uh, makes it sort of the primary way for mm-hmm. Canadians to welcome these people, so and they have l- launched six new permanent residence streams, so they take right now ninety thousand essential workers and international graduates and want to change them to permanent residents then we 're going into the summer, which traditionally the first quarter is the lowest number of immigrants Michael, we could very well hit the four hundred and one thousand that remember the official car- target of the the government is that in the next three years, we're going to add 1.2 million people or 400,000 a year. Well, guess what? We may very well uh, get it. And then, as you point out, student visas are not only up, they're up 160%. Wow. And then new new student study permits are up 44%. All that bodes well for, yes, rentals. We need more properties, and we probably still don't have enough.
1: And, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. And, and seriously, I don't want people to hear it, that I'm the one saying this. Ozzy can agree or disagree, but this is what kills me about we're not coordinating our policy. We have politicians standing up and bemoaning lack of affordable housing. So let's welcome the newcomers, but let's do it also with an eye to where are people going to live? And I just don't see any coordination of that kind of policy. And again, I'll go back to the Auditor General who says I'll be right about that. You know, interdepartmental cooperation results in programs that there is no... Uh, nobody in charge, nobody responsible for it. But here's an example where uh, you know uh, that people coming into Canada, you know, contribute to the economy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but they got to live somewhere. The student visa is a, a much bigger issue than has is ever brought up, or new student study per- permits, because again, in major centers, it could be Calgary, it could be Edmonton, it could be Vancouver, Victoria. I mean, the list, of course, is a long one, but they got to live somewhere. And I don't see any coordination of policy along those regards.
4: Well, and the thing, the reality is, as the RBC economist uh, Agapso, which uh, points out, is that we're going to go d- keep declining in the next two years because of an aging population. We do mm. need the immigrants and Absolutely. they need to stay somewhere and it'll have an impact on rents. I mean, right now, rental values around uh, student areas have gone down. Well, all of that's going to change. And so we need more accommodation. or Otherwise, we're going to have a rental spike again. That's a great point you're making there, Ozzy. And that,
1: on that note, I'll let you go out and enjoy your weekend.
4: Thank you. And, you know, you were talking about the election. and What we should remember is that Mark Twain says if voting made any difference whatsoever, they wouldn't let us do it.
1: <laughs> there you go. And by
4: the way, it's making less and
1: less difference if you listen to a Judy Wilson-Raybould's resignation yeah. letter. Ozzy Jurek, go to OzBuzz. New issue is out there right now. OzBuzz.ca. OzBuzz.ca. Absolutely free. Ozbud.ca, join Aussie, O-Z-B-U-Z-Z.ca, the most Zs used in a web address in Canada. Ozbuds.ca. I'll take a break. I'm going live to the trading desk, Victor Dare. Victor Dare joins me live from the trading desk. Vic, uh, I think we're in for this. You told us this a while ago that you really saw a lot of choppiness in the markets, maybe not a clear direction. And yeah, I know we made some new highs this week, but they're barely new highs but you know, big up days, big down days, all around the block. How are you making sense of that? A trader would love that, by the way, because you're short term, of course.
5: <laughs> well, well, sometimes you love it, and sometimes when you're out of step, you don't love it at all. But we had some really choppy price action this weekend. I mean, as of, for instance, uh, WTI crude oil hit a seven-year high on the first day of the week, which was Tuesday this week. Um, you know, there was the thought that. We're going to have uh, just confusion out of OPEC and friends. We were up to $77 on Tuesday. A couple of days later, we're down $6 from that, and then we closed Friday $4 higher. Uh, we had a new all-time high in the S&P. I think it was Wednesday. Then we dropped the equivalent of about 700 Dow points overnight and then rallied all the way back and made another new high on Friday to close the week at an all-time high. But, Mike, the, the, the key event for me this week of uh, all of this choppiness that was going on was what appears to have been a blow-off top to the bond market. So bond prices are rising as bond yields have been falling. And as you know, you know, for the past several months here, as the economy's reopening and there's talk about the inflation and so on, the consensus view was that interest rates were going to be rising and that the long bond yield would get higher and higher. And a lot of people were putting on trades where they call a yield curve trade, where they short the long bond and and, uh, long, shorter-dated stuff. The banks generally really like an environment where interest rates, short-term interest rates are low, long-term interest rates are high because they borrow short and lend long and all that kind of thing. The bond market had this rally and caught a lot of people wrong-footed. The rally lasted about three months, and I think it ended here this week, or at least in my time frame it ended. And why that's really key is that when we talked here a little while ago, there was a key turn date back in May, about the 10th of the 12th. That's the day copper traded an all-time high, lumber traded an all-time high, and on my website, I listed a whole bunch of things that made highs that day. The Dow made a high that day, and the NASDAQ made a low. This leads me to this thought, we've talked about it before, rotation, where money kind of surges around within the market, you call it the inside of the market, going from one thing to another, maybe from growth to value and all of that. I think this turn of the bond market may signal that we're gonna get another one of these rotations as the market turns around capital going from one place to another.
1: And and as I say, I've been also looking for that sort of choppy period. Uh, And again, you're talking about short-term trading opportunities where when I talked with Bob earlier, Bob Hoy earlier, I asked them for, you know, yes, you know, sort of several months and then going out a little bit further than that. So, uh, you know, they're not quite the same. As you say, check your time frame when you're talking about what's about to happen. Let me ask you this, Vic, and sort of a a summary kind of thing is what are you doing now in the market? Because we're now back to more regular trading. We've got the July 4th out of the way, July 1st out of the way. So what are you doing in the market?
5: Okay, this uh, one thing I did do this week, I bought the Canadian dollar uh, $0.04 cents below its highs of last month. Uh, again, mm-hmm. I'm looking for you know, some rotation in the market. We've had this idea earlier on that inflation and reflation was going to drive the commodity sector higher. Suddenly, for the past two months or so, that's kind of been out of fashion. I think that might come back into fashion. So the way I'm participating is to be a buyer of the Canadian dollar. I'm kind of doing some bottom picking here. It's about a two- or three-month low in the Canadian dollar. Uh, that would be, make me sympathetic to the commodity space. I really do think the stock market is, on a longer-term time frame, really incredibly uh, overpriced here. But I'm not going to short something. It's a very powerful bull market. But if it, it starts to show signs, I would want to take a poke at that on the short side. And one other thing, maybe a little off the radar for a lot of people, but all of this year, the Japanese yen has gone down, down, and down. And one of the the way we look at the yen is it's kind of a haven. It's where, as Bobby would say, you know, the safe money wants to go when there's a storm. So uh, there's no, nobody of any degree has been jumping into the yen. But this week the yen started to give some signs that maybe it's turning up. I know there's a massive speculative short position against the yen. So if it does start to rally. I think those shorts could be buying the yen, so I, I would be looking also to, to buy the Japanese yen. But for our listeners, probably the easiest trade is I uh, like the Canadian dollar here.
1: And again, what uh, – now, this is me. And again, I'm not putting words in your mouth at all, Vic. And I'm looking longer term than you're. you're looking at short-term trading opportunities. I'm looking longer term. I – and it's sort of coincides with what Bob Hoy was telling us earlier. I'm looking for, I'd love to see a big rally in the Canadian dollar because I'd exchange some of it for us dollars coming up, you know, but that's a long-term view. So it's so interesting to hear you say say on the short term there that that's what you're looking for, you know, nibbling at. And of course you always do it with very, very um, determined or, or I'm trying to think disciplined. sorry, disciplined, Limits on when it goes against you, you're always out. That's still the big message. The way you re- manage your risk is so brilliant for our listeners to listen to. In the meantime, speaking of brilliant, go out and play golf this weekend. <laughs> That's well, my prescription.
5: W- one of these days, I'll get you out on the course with me, and i look forward to that.
1: Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Earlier this week, when I read a tweet by the director of the BC Civil Liberties Association, Walia. Posted on a over top of Vice story that detailed the arson of two churches. Her tweet said, Burn them all down. Well, I was appalled. When I read the Prime Minister's comment, echoed closest advisor, Gerald Butt, saying, in Mr. Trudeau's word, arson was fully understandable given the country's shameless history. I was equally appalled. More on that in a moment. But first, a little history. The Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement, it's the largest class action settlement in Canadian history. The agreement started to be implemented in 2007. It created the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. It was to facilitate reconciliation among former students, their families, their communities, and all Canadians. Now, in 2016, the final volume of the Truth and Reconciliation Report was released, 138 pages plus, many more in supporting documents. But it was entitled, Canada's Residential Schools, Missing Children and Unmarked Burials. These were not mass graves, as so many, including in the media, have stated. They are unmarked burials. And here's the point. Tragically, by the way, half of the documented dress were attributed to tuberculosis, which fostered because there was limited government funding, which, as the report details in quotes, students in most schools were malnourished, quartered in crowded and unsanitary facilities, poorly clothed, overworked. Now, that was 2016. On September by the way, basically it was December 2015, early 2016. On September 30th, 2019, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation Harris held a ceremony in Gatineau, Quebec, and it released the names of 2,800 children who died in residential schools. The only people surprised by the discovery of what's believed to be two, a two, a 215 unmarked graves in Kamloops are people who have not been paying attention. Certainly the Kamloops area First Nations were well aware, which is why they said it was verification. And yet we have politicians, leaders, members of the public acting like this is the first they've heard of it? Well, if that's the case, then they might want to get off their high horse and look long enough in the mirror. Even a casual interest would have brought the issue of unmarked burial sites for children in the care of residential schools to the attention years ago. For all those politicians in the public who pushed to cancel Canada Day, my question continues to be, where have you been? Back to the tweet, though, by the director of BC Civil Liberties Association, Hashawalia, and so many others, by the way. Along with the rationale for the arson by Prime Minister, let's be clear. Many First Nations leaders and survivors of residential schools have spoken out strongly against the burning of churches. In doing so, displayed far more leadership and wisdom than our political leaders. Just yesterday, nine Victoria-area First Nations leaders signed a document saying arson and tearing down statues are not supported by Indigenous communities and must stop. This is their words, in quotes, they fuel hate and inhibit the healing that is so deeply needed right now. The disrespectful and damaging acts we have seen are not helping. They are perpetuating hurt, hate, and divide. End of quote. No, the B.C. director of the B.C. Civil Liberties Association, Hashi Walia, the NDP's Nikki Ashton, and so many think they know better. They should be embarrassed, but they won't be. But there's more than that. On another side of this issue is the rule of law is increasingly under attack in this country, and the response of our leaders is woefully inaccurate, inadequate. Think back to the illegal blockades of the railway in late 2019, early 2020. No repercussions. Governments have turned a blind eye when protest groups like Extinction Rebellion unlawfully disrupt our daily lives. Pipeline protesters ignore court orders, too often with impunity. We have people tearing down statues on public property while police look on. Lots of examples. Now it's escalated to burning churches, which according to the Prime Minister is understandable. Look, being outraged, being profoundly disturbed and disgusted. Anyone reading the report that I just mentioned Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yes, they're going to be disgusted, disturbed, outraged, but that doesn't excuse random acts of, uh, of arson. If the rationale for breaking the laws of prime minister says is understandable, where does that lead? When someone loses their business due to the pandemic restrictions while big wa- box retailers, retailers remain open, is his or her anger understandable? Does that give them license to vandalize, burn, or attack someone? If climate fa- activists torch the Parkland fuel refinery in Burnaby, will that be understandable? In the U.S., anger, frustration, and outrage, totally justified and understandable at the killing of George Floyd or Michael Brown or Breonna Taylor. But does that give license to break the law, destroy tens of millions of property, threaten bystanders? I mean, we have laws, and we have many ways to legally protest, but they're increasingly being ignored. Here's the point. We all better start thinking about where does that lead
0: Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or anywhere you get your on demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more.